Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Episode 112 of the Podium Panel Podcast. We have three cases today, and I'm live transmitting from a Starbucks up in Marinette, Wisconsin, uh, up here to get some stuff to bring to my son next weekend. With that, the first case today is the Illinois Appellate Court First District. We'll decide 4043 South Drexel Condominium Association versus Burke. Our second case is from the Illinois Appellate Court Fourth District, which will address Wilson versus Beasley, and the third case is Wells Fargo Bank North America versus Wynn from the Illinois Appellate Court, 2nd District. Let's turn to our first case. This case will test the equitable powers of the court. What is a court to do when the members of a condominium association have disregarded all of the rules governing the association, and this may not be as rare as you think, such as noticing meetings by email when the declarations provide for certified mail, not keeping meeting minutes from 2008 to 2017, allowing one member to own well more than 39% of the 12 units, allowing members to rent well more than 50% of the units, and having a board of three unit owners when the declarations require a five-member board. Those are the issues to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides 4043 South Drexel Condominium Association versus Burke. Disputes arose between the unit owners who vied for control of a 12-unit condominium association. And this is the next in a line of litigation between them that has led to one settlement agreement and seems likely to be headed for more. There was at one point competing boards after the defendant properly noticed a meeting that the other members chose not to attend. Meanwhile, they noticed a meeting by email, which is not permitted, and elected a board of a non-conforming number. Pat, tell us about oral argument. What a what a mess. And and if and if the court could just tell everybody to go back and start over again, just like, you know, a pox on both your houses, you know, all you people are crazy. Go go follow the rules and come back to us. But that isn't on the menu, really. An appellate court can only really address what's before them and what's before them appears to be a order that uh, is to who control, which is, which board is the right board. Um, and the court, ha- the trial court held that the right board is the one that was uh, created by Burke, um, who is this person that came to own what, eight of the units of the 12 units and is renting at least seven of them, if not more. And all kinds of, you know, alleged shenanigans regarding transferring them to his father in order to one of them to his father in order to keep it below the number. Uh, But essentially he has the ability to control the association without a consultation from anyone else, which is why you have these kinds of limitations, both on the number of units a particular owner can own, as well as your ability to rent them because rental condominium units are, it, it diminishes the value of the overall association. But it seems that the other unit owners have rented their units as well. 
and essentially this is a condo building with a bunch of renters renters in it and very few people that are owner occupiers which is what is probably it was the goal generally of most of condominium associations is that's what keeps the value keeps people interested in maintaining the property because they have a whole lot more interest in their home than they would have in a rental property uh, perhaps it's it it's a real everybody seems to have violated all of the so many of the rules and what I think it was uh, Justice Paczynski just kept coming back to counsel for the appellate saying, yeah, you noticed a meeting, but it wasn't, but you weren't allowed to do it. Do you have anything that shows that you, I mean, you could have changed the, they could have changed the board declaration or the declarations to allow a meeting to be noticed by email, but you didn't do that. And he said, well, that's how it was done before. Yes. So that doesn't mean that that works as a meeting. The only meeting we see here that was properly noticed is one by the defendant, Burke, who sent certified mail, and then none of your people showed up. And then the, and then the board meeting board that you guys created was too few. Yeah, Judge, but we, but that's how it was done before. And, and around and around and around they went. Uh, I, I've given a very quick synopsis of what this case, what this argument was like. And, and he's he starts the argument by saying, oh, this is really very simple on the facts. And then... 10 minutes later, as he's describing the facts, you're going, no, not simple on the facts, uh, a disaster on the facts. Uh, you and, and it didn't get much better with uh, defense counsel, who was the appellee, in terms of how complicated the, this, these facts are. And I don't know how you untangle this mess where you don't know who was controlling, you don't know who was legitimately controlling the association, if anyone. There also was this, uh, the, this started when apparently some of the units went into foreclosure and Burke per- allegedly purchased some of those out of foreclosure and a route uh, began with payment on back assessments on those units. So he owned the units from, he only wanted to, he only wanted to pay and only did pay it seems the going forward assessments, not the assessments that were in arrears. I don't know if you could do that. Uh, it seems you buy when you buy the the asset, such as it is, you buy the liability too. Uh, it's the the uh, the assessments and arrears are part of the bargain that you that you got quote got, and so that was the first settlement agreement that Dan referred to, related to how they were going to resolve this. But that puts the association in financial peril. Uh, with not having sufficient uh, assessments to uh, per, you know, for the financial health of the of the association, if they they have the assessments are for a purpose to maintain the building, to uh, pay you know if, should there be a, a roof or or something a dramatic repair that needs to be made or to upgrade the um, upgrade the common elements or any other other number of things that an association is supposed to do. Um, I've probably told this story before, but I remember in property class, first year property class in law school, the professor describing condominium ownership and me turning to my, to my uh, law school buddy and saying, that has got to be the world's worst way to own property. Uh, and, and this kind of confirms it. Um, it's just a, it's a horror story. And the amount of money that these people have spent in litigation over who's going to control this, this association, and this is particularly acute when you're dealing with an association that's so small, 
you only got 12 units. I mean, their margins are thin trying to maintain a building when you're only splitting up the cost 12 ways, or in this case, two thirds towards one guy. You're entirely reliant on his ability to pay. Uh, now, if he keeps the units rented, perhaps he can, but boy, you're really uh, hoping he, he manages it properly and putting the financial health of perhaps the largest asset of the other unit owners in the hands of one person, as opposed to dis, dif, uh, diffusing the, that risk, which is the usual arrangement. And, and also, he's contingent on his ability to rent these units. Uh, and if the building's not being maintained, then you end up with a cycle of the building not being properly maintained, which affects the ability to to rent the property, which affects his ability to pay, and on and on. And it it, it affects the value of everyone's unit uh, in, in this in this association. But I don't know, does the court have, the court doesn't really have the authority to tell him to divest the, um, di- divest it, because we don't know under what authority, if any, there it was given to him to per, to violate the rules. If the, you know they can always waive the rules if they want to by a particular vote, but it doesn't seem they did that either. So I, I, I just w- what a mess, and I don't know how the court the court is not going to be able to untangle this mess in this opinion. It's going to take uh, some more litigation, unfortunately, for these folks to try to get this mess untangled unless they can reach a settlement agreement. That doesn't seem likely either. It's going to require some divestment or some massive changes to this association. Um, Dan, what are your thoughts? I agree, Pat. This is a mess. And, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, not sure how uncommon or common this is that condominiums, associations, this seems more extreme than normal. But I would say that, you know, there's often disputes over when people rehab their condos or other things, they didn't follow the guidelines or they didn't get board approval or didn't, you know, do their things. And, you know, a lot of a lot of bylaws and a lot of the corporate governance documents for corporations and LLCs and other companies uh, have these kind of notice provisions and, you know, antiquated where people just haven't updated them. So, for, for example, here, you know, email seems to be the way to go or some other notice provision. But, you know, certified mail, which seems kind of onerous for people that live in the building. But in any event, you know. Oftentimes just, these well, things what, get. Why not just put a notice in their box? I mean, goodness gracious! Right, what a, right, you know, right. Most most associations, or many associations, the mailbox they've got. You know, they've got the place where the mailbox goes, but then they've got a little slot where you can just put stuff in. To right. Give notice of these kinds of things, and you restrict who's allowed to do that. You can't go right. around soliciting stuff, but you can give proper notices of condiment, you know, board meetings and that, that kind of thing. That seems to be a whole lot better. You people are allegedly all live there. So why not, right, right. Why go through this onerous process? As you said, I don't know how the court's going to handle this because, like you said, I don't think they have the power to divest. They don't have the power to do a lot of things that need to be done here. Uh, unfortunately, I think this is going to be headed for more litigation and potential settlements of various pieces because, yeah, the court really can't, doesn't have the authority and to. There was a request for that, but the court's like, how can we do that? You haven't put that in front of us. That's not, that's not in front. They've got a very limited scope of what they're allowed right. to deal with and that this right. this they have to unwind a whole bunch of deals and i'm not sure that's preferable either putting a bunch either. of these units on the market doesn't seem to benefit everybody either the request was for a receiver to take right. this over it's like we don't have the ability to take I mean, the receiver would be one way to do it but that's got to start in the, in the trial court you got to right. go to the trial court and say appoint a receiver to try to 
undo all this or to somebody to dissolve the association and then unwind this. Yep. Um, that's also a very expensive, contentious process too. Um, at the very least, Burke has invested a bunch of money. Why, you know, he wasn't following the rules, sure, but neither was anybody else. Um, I, really, really not a good situation. No, not, not at all. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Wilson versus Beasley. back for segment two of episode 112 of the Podium and Panel podcast. You're going to need a scorecard for this one. <laughs> can, a, can a court decide on summary judgment causation for, for a claim of negligence against a forklift operator and a Dairy Queen franchisee? You never thought you'd hear that combination before. For the unloading of a walk-in cooler. It's called a walk-in cooler, but I think it's a walk-in freezer. It's a Dairy Queen, for goodness sake. It's a Dairy uh, Queen. That, that, it's frozen. Uh, following the decision in Hudson versus Pate, is it appropriate to consider the open and obvious doctrine in deciding such an issue? How should the claims against the third-party defendants, and here's where the scorecard comes in, the third-party defendants are the plaintiff's employer and the manufacturer palletizer of the cooler. How should those be dealt with and should fault be compared with the plaintiff at this stage? Those are among the questions the Illinois Appellate Court Fourth District will address when it decides Wilson versus Beasley. The plaintiff, a truck driver, was injured on the third attempt to unload a cooler from his truck. This is like a walk-in cooler. He sued Beasley, the forklift Very large. Operator. Yeah, very large. Very, very large. He sued Beasley, the forklift operator, and the Patels and the Kaiser Group, the franchisees, who in turn third-partied in the plaintiff's employer and an N and N transfer, and Norlake, the manufacturer of the cooler. The circuit court granted summary judgment to the third-party defendants and to the direct defendants and the plaintiff and the third-party plaintiff's appeal. So these are two separate appeals, two separate orders that, on, that got consolidated um, uh, into one case. The direct defendants principally relied on the testimony of the plaintiff that he had the authority to leave if he did not think the situation was safe, that the plaintiff stood near the load and went to it as it began to fall. That's genius. And he did not think that the direct defendants were at fault. At least that's what he testified to. In turn, the plaintiff contended that there was a loading dock available, the failure to coordinate the delivery beforehand, and the failure to use an appropriate forklift that Beasley had access to. For their part, the third-party defendant employer contended that this was not their premises and that the plaintiff ignored his training, and that the third-party defendant manufacturer, that the load was properly palletized, that they had properly palletized it if the appropriate loading equipment was used. Dan, what are your thoughts on this case? Yeah, like I said, you need a scorecard for this. And there were uh, four uh, different attorneys uh, argued for various appellees in this case, including the employers. Uh, Norlake was the manufacturer of this big uh, walk-in. Like you said, it's called a cooler, but it was like eight feet by, you know, I had a, a signs on the top that it was top heavy. Um, the, the appellant opened by, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, talking about the Hudson versus Pate case that we discussed on the show. I was in this district where that case was decided. Um, and and the, the discussion there, as we talked about with, with Hudson, is that the open and obvious uh, doctrine can only be used in premises and that this was not a premises per se, uh, the property we, uh, that least, affects the at property. Least the, at least in the fourth district. At so least in the fourth we, district. 
which is different because we've talked about other cases where that's not the case. And uh, one of the justices, <laughs> after about a minute of talking about Hudson versus Pate, said, we're well aware of our own cases. <laughs> so we kind of shut that down. Um, the the, the argument... to move on. Right, right. And what happened here was that the, the trial court um, decided that, that uh, the, this plaintiff, Wilson, uh, that he was at least 50% as a matter of law uh, negligent. There was a big discussion between the justices and the appellant about whether or not uh, the, uh, as a matter of law, you could find that someone was uh, more than 50% negligent. Uh, the appellees, when they got up, uh, made, made a pretty good argument here. So as you mentioned, this was the third attempt. Uh, the employer's attorney mentioned that her husband's a truck driver. And she said, just like you call a partner or, or somebody else when you have questions, uh, when you have issues with delivery, you call dispatch. And that's the number one rule that's in every truck driver's manual. This truck driver had that been... Seemed extra, that seemed like extra record testimony, but... It did. It, it did. It did. Um, you, you mentioned that the employer was involved and that they argued again uh, that there were theories of negligent training, negligent supervision. And as you mentioned, she mentioned that this is not the premises, that uh, that that he uh, self-taught himself for about 35 or some more years how to uh, truck drive. And what happened here was this giant, there's this giant cooler freezer on his truck. He tried to deliver it before and was unable to because it was so big and, and just the, the dimensions of it. Uh, this guy Beasley has this, this forklift. He's the forklift operator, which is, you know, a, a regular size forklift. There's a, there's another forklift down at some other building. Uh, like you said, the delivery depot where they could have, I guess, unloaded it. And some of the testimony from this Wilson guy, the, the truck driver was that he, felt compelled to deliver it on this occasion. Uh, why? I don't know. Um, so that this, this giant freezer is put on this forklift, uh, whether it's on pellet or whatever it's on. And th this Wilson guy stands underneath it and in, in the center of it, which I'm, I still am trying to visualize what in the hell he was doing there. Um, and, and lo and behold, the, the forklift forks are too narrow for this top-heavy piece of equipment, and it falls on him, and he's injured. The uh, As one of the justices described it, he was acting as a center fielder. Right. right. He's going to catch this thing. Right. Um, he uh, the, the, the claim of appellant uh, was that he realized the size of this but didn't realize that this was a unique uh, parcel for some reason. Um one of one of the things that was talked about was the pelletization, which is I never heard that word before. I don't even know what that means, but I guess you, how you put stuff on pellets and how you shrink wrap it and, and put it on is a matter of some some science. Um, so, like you said, they're, they're, it's hard to keep everybody straight. Norlake was the manufacturer of this. Their argument was, look, we 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 packaged it, but then it was was sent by you know the trucking company. And so we had no, no liability for this. I mean, you look at this thing. Um, the uh, uh, 
like I said, the, the, one of the questions of the justice was, your client had authority to turn around and leave? And, and the response was yes, but he wanted to get a load delivered uh, and felt he was in a position that had to get it delivered. Um, the, uh, the the franchisees were, were included. Like you said, there's two orders here. So on rebuttal, uh, the one attorney, I believe it was for the franchisees, Pat, uh, got to talk about his uh, counterclaim against uh, Wilson and the employer. Um, there, there's talk about uh, uh, some of the defendants in this case, which which uh, wasn't clear from the argument. Uh, there's only a couple of named defendants in this case. And so uh, I don't know if Norlake then brought in or the the uh, franchisees then brought in the other defendants or or. No, no, the, the two direct defendants brought in the two, so two. The, the franchisees and the and the and Beasley brought in the manufacturer and the um, and the employer. The employer obviously couldn't be sued by the plaintiff, right? So they had, so they both brought in. They're both, they're both both appellants and appellees, right? Uh, because they're as as the counsel for the employer said. You know, she started this by filing the motion for summary judgment first. Right. And I think that the third-party defendants got their judgments first, and then the uh, defendants got their judgment. Um, and the interesting question is here is how do you compare the fault amongst all of these defendants? Uh, and that was one of the questions the justices were asking is, do we send this back piecemeal? I mean, right. how do we do that? Uh, do we send it all back uh, so that the so that a jury can compare the ver- the relative fault of of these people, um, of these various entities, and try to see if that, because the more defendants there are, the more third party defendants there are, the less likely it is that the plaintiff is going to be more than 50 percent. But yeah. if you have fewer, then you know. So this is the, it, it's it's a mess. It, it really is a mess. But it seems yeah, there's- clear. Yeah, and like you said, there's talk about you know the the, the uh, third party defendants uh, that they can only be liable if the if it first is determined that you know that against the the named defendants uh, right. that that he survives the the fifty percent. So it is a mess. Uh, you know, one of one of the um, uh, justices, you know, in response to this argument that that uh, the judge cannot uh, decide uh, motions for summary judgment and other types of uh, motions using facts, you know, said, uh, you know, on, on all kinds of motions, there is where judges as a matter of law, just because it's so clear, there's no issue of material fact can decide. Uh, but this case, uh, uh, as we've said several times now is, is a mess and, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what this, what this court does with it. Indeed. So with that, we will take our next break and come back with Wells Fargo versus Wynn. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Segment three of the Podium and Panel podcast, episode 112. Questions abound in Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., 
versus Wynn. First, is there a conflict of interest for a lawyer to represent the borrowers in a foreclosure action and then to represent the trustee after it's discovered that the house at issue was an unreported asset that was the property of the bankruptcy estate? Second, is the trustee subject to a defense of latches for post-petition conduct by the borrowers and consideration of petition to vacate the judgment of foreclosure under 735 LCS 5-2-1401? Third, are the current owners of the home necessary parties required to get notice of the petition to vacate following the 2018 amendments to Section 2-1401? Does it matter that the original petition was filed in 2017, but that an amended petition was filed in 2019? Fourth, can the trustee get any remedy should Section 2-1401 petition be successful? Or is this a useless exercise? The borrowers contended that they could not request the house back as the statute of repose had run on such a claim, but asserted that they would request money damages on a counterclaim for violation of their due process rights by Wells Fargo, because under Illinois law, there is no statute of limitations for counterclaims. Fifth, are the borrowers judicially stopped from claiming they own the house because they did not list the asset on their bankruptcy petition? Is it a valid excuse that they were no longer living in the home at the time of the filing of the bankruptcy petition? These are the among the questions the Illinois Appellate Court, 2nd District, will consider when it decides this case. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. And, and at the close of the argument, uh, the presiding justice, Justice Hudson, described it as just as that, as a very interesting case with a ton of issues for them to resolve. Um, it, it, it's, I, I want to say this foreclosure goes back to 2010. It was unclear to me when the bankruptcy was filed, but it had to be around that time because they were still in the house and the bankruptcy was filed in the Eastern District of Michigan. <laughs> so it's a very common process that when a, well, usually you see it in the negligence context, but it certainly can occur in this context too, where you have somebody who has not declared an asset on their bankruptcy that should have been declared and would have fallen within the, uh, the scope of what the trustee would control, that that person then goes to the bankruptcy trustee and gets appointed to prosecute the action if the trustee doesn't want to take on the case. And that's exactly what happened here. And so the first question, apparently what happened here is there were several questions that the appellate court gave to the parties to address at the oral argument. And one of them was this question of whether counsel for the plaintiff appellant, or sorry, petitioner appellants, so they are petitioners on the 1401 petition, defendants in the original case, whether he had a conflict of interest between representing the uh, in his appointment as for the trustee and previously representing the wins in their chat and filing the 1401 petition. So that I think that's going to get resolved in their favor because I don't think there's a conflict in that situation. Their interests are the same. Um, the question there what there would be a slight bit of this of uh, adversity at the time when they were trying to figure out whether the wins will hold on to the claim or the trustee will take it. But I don't think that's a kind of adversity that would uh, affect the ability of the lawyer and should lead to him being disqualified. I I, I don't see that at all. It's that would be very strange. But you know, stranger things. The, the real issue is 
the because I think they'll deal with that issue pretty easily. But the real issue is, okay, so what are we doing on this 1401 petition? One of the things you have to show in a 1401 petition is that you were diligent. And what the defense that was successful, so this is this case has gone up now twice to the appellate court. The first time they held that the for, that the trial court improperly analyzed the 1401 analysis, sent it back. So then it got back and, and there, the court originally held both estoppel and latches barred these claims but then it reconsidered and said, no, only latches applies. And the question is, does latches apply for post-petition conduct for the trustee? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, and the and latches is essentially the idea that he waited too long to bring the claim that, and this house has since been, it was the, presumably the bank sold it. There was a deficiency judgment uh, it, it seems there's a deficiency judgment. Someone that they then sold the house, and someone else li entirely lives in uh, lives in the house. Right. So that this potentially affects their rights, or at least that's the claim. I don't see how because they're not claiming to take the house back. They're not looking to get the house back. They weren't even living in it when they filed for bankruptcy. Uh, but they are seeking money damages because apparently they didn't get personal notice of the lawsuit. They got notice via publication which uh, their, their contention is, well, they didn't actually give us notice that this foreclosure was going on. It's like, how did you not know the foreclosure was going on? I mean, that, you know, you, you knew, they had to have known that the foreclosure was going on. So I, I have real doubts about the merits of the claim and counsel for the uh, appellant who have had cases, good lawyer. And, right. and he really raise, raises some very interesting issues. But I, ultimately, they've got a real problem. And one of the justices raised it, this is the fifth question that Dan listed, is either they were lying and when they didn't disclose the asset to the detriment of their creditors, or they, uh, they didn't actually own the house. So which is it? Um, either they don't have standing or they're judicially stopped, in other words. Um, it, it falls in line with the question of when did you stop beating your wife? Uh, but a bit, a bit more fair. Uh, so I, it's gonna be a very interesting decision I expect. And I don't know if we'll get the rocket speed we oftentimes get from the second district in terms of their opinion, because there's a lot of issues for them to contend with. And one's, you know, because of the interaction with the federal court that, uh, and the bankruptcy that they don't usually deal with. So uh, they may take a little longer than normal, but it's a, it, it's, a lot of issues here, very interesting ones. Uh, federalism and, and, and bankruptcy and all kinds of things. Very, very interesting. Dan, your thoughts? I agree. It's, it's a very interesting case, as the justice said and as we've said. And uh, I think you're right on the, on the uh, conflict or, or representation. I think that's, that, that's clear. Um, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know how the current owners can be impacted negatively. Right, like how how would that? But they may happen? need notice anyway. Right, which, which right. may void the fourteen oh one petition. Right, so we'll come back for round three. Right, yeah, I think it, it's coming back. I don't think I don't think this is done. So, so with that, uh, let's do our segment on business interruption and COVID cases. Big week, Dan. Why don't you tell us? Yeah, about? yeah. So uh, we've talked about some of the highest courts in the land. And uh, the Washington Supreme Court held as 
have other the four or five others that there's no coverage for business interruption uh, claims. Uh, this was a dental practice that was still open. And, you know, a lot of these cases, uh, a lot of the cases that have gone up on appeal uh, have been dental practices, which is interesting, you know, uh, probably kind of like the restaurants and stuff, they probably have lawyers that represent them and it's maybe national practices, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, the court found again that they, they still were able to operate maybe on a reduced schedule. And uh, again, uh, the things we've talked about, the, the same things over and over again. So that, that was a big case. Well, what's interesting um, and, is this. We now have decisions coast to coast. We Iowa, do. Iowa, Wisconsin, South Carolina, uh, Massachusetts, and Washington. Yep. If the plaintiffs can't win in Washington, right. or I'm Massachusetts, not sure where they can win. And, Matt, right. and, and well, Washington is one of the most pro-insured right. uh, Supreme Courts in the country. This is a court that held that claims adjusters can be personally liable for bad faith. Right. Right. So this is a very pro-insured court. And for them to say there is no coverage here on a, in a unanimous decision, yep. boy, uh, it, it's it's hard to say they're going to find a state Supreme Court that's going to agree with them. Not, not, and not only the court there, but the, the insurance department, the regulators are very pro-consumer and pro, pro-insured as well. Absolutely. Uh, Washington's one of the states that has uh, banned... The use of credit scoring for personal auto, for example, again, revived it, that it had kind of gone away for a while and uh, has issued, you know, uh, some very uh, stern, uh, you know, guidance. So you're right. If you can't win in Washington, I, I'm not sure if there's any state left that's that's potentially good Maybe for will, the church. Washington had to be thought of as one of their best chances. Missouri, perhaps. Right. Another one. Louisiana. Uh, they've got some others. Louisiana is obviously on the board because right. they're the appellate court decision there. But California yeah. is still in the play, and that brings us to an appellate court decision in, in California. And Dan, why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, there was a Los Angeles appellate court that reversed the dismissal in a case uh, that, that had been decided on motion to dismiss. So fairly unique for that to happen. But uh, uh, we'll see what happens when it goes up to the Supreme Court of California. Uh, well, this is a this is a dismissal. So it was a dismissal. It's not, so it's not a, it goes it back, right? Yeah, it goes yeah. back. But I mean, yeah. they, obviously, the obviously the insurer could appeal to the California Supreme Court. Perhaps they will. Yeah. But even if they win, it's still you got to go back. It's going back, go anyway, back which is the it's denial back. of a motion to dismiss. Yeah. So it'll be it'll be uh, interesting to see what happens in that case. So. So that brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong for this week. Um, and our first case, uh, Drexel Condominium Association versus Burke. I, I think this gets affirmed. I think so. I think a, that's right. I think they'd like to probably do a lot more, but I don't think they can do a lot more. Than, than I, I don't either. Yep. I think w- Wilson versus Beasley, I think that gets reversed too. I, I do. I think that yeah. gets sent back, but I think the whole thing gets sent back. All the defendants, third-party defendants, everyone's going back. And they're I think going so. Trial. Yep. Um, and then Wells Fargo versus Wynn, I think that gets affirmed. I think so. Okay. So very good, which brings us to, we had one result this week. Uh, our, our record now is 170 and a half, 28 and a half, and 10. Uh, the decision this week is in Fox versus Ameren, which 
which was discussed on episode 110. It's the Powerline case. Dan, tell us about this decision. Sure. They, the, the, the court, this is the power lines and whether they were sufficiently high. And the court concluded that the open and obvious doctrine does not apply to the duty created by the act the, uh, that has to do with the, the power lines in Rule 232. And they said even if they applied the open and obvious doctrine in this case, AMRA would still owe a common law duty to Fox under tra traditional duty analysis. So they reversed the trial court's grant of summary judgment and remanded for further proceedings. So, so they get to have a yeah. trial. They get to have a trial, yep. So uh, an interesting case. It's going to be the subject, uh, part of the subject of my uh, column this week in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Great, well, great. The 4th District's doing a lot with open and obvious, which, which brings us to the rule of the week, Supreme Court rule, Illinois Supreme Court rule 369B, something I was not aware of. Dan, tell us about this rule. Sure, and this has to do with uh, filings of mandates in circuit court and proceedings thereafter. Uh, part B is dismissal or affirmance. It says when the reviewing court dismisses the appeal or affirms the judgment and the mandate is filed in the circuit court, enforcement of the judgment may be had and other proceedings may be conducted as if no appeal had been taken. And so this came up in a recent case, Pat. You want to tell us about that? So in Gold versus Carpenter, Lips, and Leland, this was a case, a legal malpractice case, about whether a fee petition could be pursued following dismissal of the, appeal, of the appeal in the underlying case. And the court held that it couldn't in this case because the petition wasn't timely filed and the issue preserved, but it could have been. And the argument in the case, the, the, is usually you have the case within a case, legal malpractice doctrine. And this one you had the appellate case and proceeding subsequent within a case doctrine uh, in the legal malpractice case because what the court held was, is no, you guys blew it and you cost them the ability to get their fees back. And therefore, there's a claim for legal malpractice that can stand in this particular circumstance. Um, so an interesting bit, the, the rule really, and the thrust of it, and the reason I thought it was interesting was the, if an appeal gets dismissed and you properly preserve issues, you can now, once the mandate issues and the circuit court is revested with jurisdiction, then you can begin to pursue those uh pursue those remedies uh whatever yep. those happen to be anything else to add on that dan no i think that's it so with that uh, we'll take our leave thank you everybody for joining us th this week on the podium and panel podcast we'll see you next week uh for another episode i'm dan cotter and on behalf of my co-host pat eckler we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own 
and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.